Let me begin by asking uh, you all a question. What are the characteristics of a faithful evangelist? What are the characteristics of a faithful evangelist? C.S. Lovett wrote a pamphlet entitled Soul Winning Made Easy. And it was based on the sales techniques of the modern day written in uh, the 1950s. He says, you are in command. And then training Christians as salespeople, he continued. The trained soul winner can bring his prospect to a decision for Christ. There is no middle ground as he moves with surety and deftness right up to the point of salvation, he says. It is his conversation control that makes this possible. He knows exactly where he's going to say each step of the way. And he can even anticipate his prospects' responses. He's able to keep the conversation focused on the main issue and prevent unrelated materials from being introduced. The controlled conversation technique is something new in evangelism and represents a real breakthrough in soul winning. He goes on and gets specific. He says, get your prospect alone. And then at one point in time in the pamphlet, he teaches how to press for a decision. After you have presented the gospel, he explains, lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder or his arm. And with a semi-commanding tone of voice, say to him, bow your head with me. Note, he says, do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first out of the corner of your eyes. So you can imagine, you know, <laughs> you will see him hesitate at first. Then as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation and you will know when his heart yields. Bowing your head causes terrific psychological pressure. Is this what makes a good evangelist? Slick sales techniques? Or more accurately, manipulative sales techniques? Creepy sales techniques? What are the marks of a faithful evangelist? It's a question that we ask and a question that we answer in large part from this morning's passage. Um, and it, it, the passage doesn't present everything that we might need to say about what a, a healthy evangelist looks like or what the marks of a faithful evangelist are. But nevertheless, we can draw some of the, the core fundamentals of what a faithful evangelist looks like as we look at a man named paul paul the apostle and if you have your bibles to go ahead and turn to acts chapter 15 and we are continuing our sermon series through the book of acts or acts of the apostles it was written by a man named luke who was a doctor a physician as the scripture says he also wrote uh, the gospel that bears his name so there's the gospel according to luke and then here we have the book of acts so luke presents the life and ministry of jesus acts presents the birth of the church and the focus today, as I mentioned earlier, is on a missionary named Paul. So we get to follow him on his second of three missionary journeys as he makes his way through Turkey and then eventually up to what is now known as modern Greece and then sort of all the way down to the, to the bottom end of modern day Greece. Um, and we get to see Paul as he's carrying freshly, right? He's carrying the gospel to these new places that the gospel really hasn't been spread yet to. And we see that whether people are of one culture or another, whether they are from one socioeconomic class to another, or whether they are great sinners or highly respectable or moral people, all of these people can know Jesus. So the gospel here is so undiscriminating, incredibly undiscriminating. But as we realize that, what Jesus looks for he looks for people who repent and have faith in him. People who turn from their sins and embrace him. So we got a large chunk of scripture today, uh, over three chapters. Uh, so if we are skipping some of your favorite passages, uh, you know, we apologize. The hope is one day that we would return back to the book of Acts and uh, look at it a little bit more in depth. Let's go ahead and look at what kicks off this second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. This is what it says. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord 
and see how they are. So this here is a follow-up trip. He already went, they already went and preached the gospel to various cities. Now with his pastoral heart, he says, let's go and visit them once again to see how they are doing. So this man here is a man who's dedicated his life to feeding the sheep, to starting churches, and then, as we're going to see today, planting new ones. Um, now, once again, you know, we don't have too much time to go through all the finer details of the passage. Uh, but in the following verses, in Acts chapter 15, um, go ahead and look there, 36 to 43 or 41, <clears throat> Paul and Barnabas separate. Uh, the disagreement is over whether or not they should take this, this disciple named Mark, who in a previous situation had abandoned them for various reasons, maybe out of fear. Uh, maybe he was worried about being persecuted. But nevertheless, Paul and Barnabas, they split up. Uh, Paul goes with a man named Silas. Barnabas goes ahead and takes Mark. And then they go their separate ways. And it just so happens in the Lord's providence, he uses both teams to build up different churches. Uh, so it ends up working out, even though they do have a sharp disagreement. And then in the next verses, in 16, verses 1 to 5, we see that there is a man named Timothy. And Timothy, he joins the Apostle Paul along with Silas. And uh, they set off and make their missionary journey. Uh, Timothy, for your, for your information, this is the man uh, who First and Second Timothy are written to, those letters. So Paul writes this letter to this man named Timothy, probably a Pauline convert, someone who had confessed faith through the ministry of Paul. Um, it's a lot of fascinating information there, but uh, unfortunately we're going to have to go ahead and skip over those things. So these three, they continue through Turkey, eventually Western Turkey, and then it says in verse 6 of chapter 16, go ahead and look there, it says the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going in the direction that they wanted to go. So they fully intended to go in a certain place in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. But the Lord stops them. We don't really know how he stops them, but he does. But then Jesus, at the same time, he gives Paul this call, this Macedonian call. So look over there in uh, verse 8. So passing through Mysia, they went down to Troas, verse, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia to help us. Modern day Greece. And when Paul had seen this vision, immediately we sought to go out, to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Interesting to note there that Luke says we. So Luke here is an eyewitness, um, probably related to this general area of Macedonia. So they eventually set forward. And they head on out. Okay, so realizing that background, um, we're going to look at this passage, these next few chapters here, uh, topically, looking at what, it, what are the marks of a faithful evangelist. And we're going to look at the six characteristics of a faithful evangelist, okay? Number one, characteristic number one, a faithful witness witnesses with the word. So eventually they go over to a place called Philippi. Look at 16 verse 11. I'll go ahead and read those. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi. So basically think the northernmost part of the Aegean Sea, the northernmost part. And eventually we're going to see them working down their way through Greece. Philippi was a leading city of the district, as verse 12 says. A Roman colony. We remained there in the city for some days. And on a Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, this speaking here is not just casually having conversation. It's speaking the word. Um, interesting fact. There, we see them going to a place of prayer. Uh the reason why it's simply called a place of prayer was because it required 10 men for a group of people to be considered a synagogue or a place of worship, formal place of worship. And so here we just see that there aren't enough men. And so these women are gathering and Paul goes towards this place of prayer. He does the same thing later on as we're going to look at a little bit later. But here in Philippi, you know, you see a number of different conversions. Paul's going around and he's just preaching the gospel. So from 11 to 
15, here you have the conversion of Lydia. She's a businesswoman who deals in purple garments. She gets converted. And then in verses 16 to 24, here we have the story of how a demon-possessed slave girl, uh, she eventually, we suppose, that she is converted as well as after Paul sort of exercises her and casts out that demon. And then verses 25 to the end of the chapter, verse 40, here we see the, a Philippian jailer is converted. So there's a lot of commotion when the slave girl is, is uh, when the demon is cast out of her. Her owners basically stir up trouble. Those owners eventually cause so much trouble that it lands Paul and Silas in jail. And then you have this jailer who is converted. And we're going to read that account a little bit later. Um, but we want to notice first that this faithful witness witnesses with the word. Again, it's clear in 17 verses 1 to 3. Go ahead and look there. Now it's in Thessalonica. So if, if Philippi is up at the northern tip, Thessalonica is about 70 miles, let's say, west. Now when they had passed through Amphip- Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He's reasoning with them from this set of material here, which is called the scriptures. And back then they only had the Old Testament. So that's what he's witnessing to them from. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And then look uh, at 18 verse 5. So then eventually he travels down 150 miles south to a place named Corinth. And, and 18, and verse, 18 verse 5, what is Paul doing? He's going into the synagogues once again, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. It's interesting. You know, it's, it's almost like we're voyeurs and we see what Paul's doing. As his buddies are arriving, what is he doing? He's occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. It reveals Paul's authority, doesn't it? It's not like he's going around speaking his own thoughts about things, but he's speaking from the word. It shows what his authority is, and it actually reveals what his mission was. It underscores what it is, right? In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus says, you are my witnesses. So these apostles who go around preaching the gospel, they're not rogue preachers. You you see the possessive there in the Great Commission? You are my witnesses. Jesus owns them. And they're sent out for his sake and they are possessed by Jesus. And those that prove to be his witnesses will bear his truth. Here at First Baptist Church, you know, historically we are an evangelical church. What this means as an evangelical, it means that our sole source of authority is the scriptures the sole source it doesn't mean that we don't find church history important or other writings important but the sole source of authority here divine authority is the scriptures now you guys realize that not every christian actually believes this right or those who claim to be christians so in other words if if our sole source of authority is the scriptures and we then are underneath them there are some people who want to put other things on par with scripture as their authority or even above the scriptures as their authority. So one example, let's say feelings, subjective feelings. Now this is common, okay? Some people say, look, I know that Jesus calls me to not leave my wife or divorce my wife for unbiblical grounds. You know, let's just say divorce. Uh, I know Jesus says that divorce is not good, but yet, you know what? I just feel like the Lord is calling me to leave my wife. And you know why? It's because... We're no longer in love. She hates me and I hate her. Therefore, it means that God must be telling me to go ahead and break his commands. That just really doesn't work. Subjective feelings. I mean, if subjective feelings were really over uh, over uh, over scripture and were our sole source of authority or on par with uh, the scripture, you know, really just wait until someone punches you in the face because they subjectively feel like it's the right thing to do. And then you, exactly, you would respond in kind and punch that guy in the face because you subjectively feel that that's the right thing to do. And therefore, I mean, what does that lead to? In that situation, it would lead to death. 
But imagine if we all were guided by subjective feelings and those were all right. Who then would be right? Nobody would be right. It's, it's, it's no authority at all. Another one, reason. Now here I'm not saying that reason is unimportant. Reason is very important. There's a lot of evidence for the historicity of the fact that Jesus actually walked on earth and that he actually rose from the dead. Here I'm talking about putting reason over authority. And you only believe what you know for certain is true. You only believe what you know for certain is true with facts. But then if that is the authority, I mean, how do we know for certain that we are not let's just say, a figment of someone's imagination. How do we know that for certain? We can't know that for certain. So is reason or our senses, the things that we understand with our senses, the final authority? There, I think the answer has to be no. Um, others still yet, they put the church over scripture or at least on par with scripture. What this looks like is if, hey, if my church teaches something, if the, the leader of the church teaches something and it goes against scripture, it doesn't matter. We follow the teacher. But Paul had a serious warning against this. In Galatians 1 verse 6, he says, even if we, he's talking about the apostles here, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you already, let him be accursed, he says. So can an apostle trump the message of the gospel? The answer is no. Can an angel who dwells in the heavenly places trump the message of the gospel? Paul says no. If that person does do these things, they are to be accursed. Authority is in the message. Authority is in the message because it comes from the completely authoritative God who has actually spoken. So when you tweak the message... You tweak the authority. So if I start preaching a message that's different than what is in the scriptures, I have no authority. You are to give me no authority if I do that. Tweak the message, you have no authority. The authority is in the message. Paul is a faithful witness, witnesses from the scripture, because he knows that that was his authority. What this looks like today for us is we, preach, we seek to preach expositionally. So we seek to preach through books of the Bible um, and preaching the whole counsel of God because all of it is important. And if you noticed in the Isaiah 55 passage that we read earlier, that Rick read, there at the very end, just go ahead and turn there. Isaiah chapter 55. This is just... Uh, just one example in scripture about how authoritative and effective the word of God is. This is why we seek to base everything we do in scripture. Look at verse 10. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven. So where is it coming down from? It's coming down from above, right? Not from us. Just as it comes down and does not return there. So it doesn't go back up, but it actually waters the earth. It stays in the earth. It, it brings forth and it sprouts other things. Making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Right? So that the word actually produces something. And he says, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. And it does not return to me empty. But instead of doing that, it accomplishes isn't that fascinating? He doesn't say you accomplish. He says it accomplishes that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which who sent it? Not we sent it, but God sent it. It comes forth from God's mouth. It accomplishes God's purpose because he is the one who sent it. He is, in fact, God. So practically, we seek to preach the whole counsel of Scripture, walking through books of the Bible, which is what we're doing right here in the book of Acts. That's characteristic number one. A faithful witness witnesses from the scripture. Characteristic number two, a faithful witness witnesses to the gospel. But not only that, I should tweak it. A faithful witness believes and witnesses to the gospel. 
believes and witnesses to the gospel. So Paul himself, his former name was Saul, um, and he was a killer of Christians. A killer of Christians. And yet he believed in the Old Testament, right? What we now know as the Old Testament. He believed that, but yet he killed Christians. Interesting, right? And then as he's riding his horse to kill other Christians, or at least to supervise the killing of others, uh, the Lord Jesus appears to him. The crucified and resurrected Christ appears to him, knocks him off of his horse, and he is convicted. He says, why are you persecuting me? He's convicted of his sin. He then is sent somewhere where he has heard more about the message of the truth, the message of the gospel. He believes it, and then he goes around preaching that same gospel, preaching the Christ who is the Messiah. So he believes the gospel, but he also witnesses to it. Look again in uh, verses 17 of chapter of Acts, not chapter Acts. <laughs> Acts 17. Right, remember, he's in the synagogues. Verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So it was necessary. So reasoning from the Old Testament, he's saying it was necessary that Christ die. So from the Old Testament, he's able to provide a, a unified plan of God's story of redemption. About how all of it sort of pointed to Jesus Christ. It was necessary because God had planned it. It was necessary for Christ to suffer. So even from Genesis 3, from the third chapter of Scripture, we already see a foreshadowing of the fact that God was planning to send a deliverer. Mysterious, somewhat, that an offspring of a woman would crush the head of a serpent and would himself be injured in the act of deliverance. That's Genesis 3.15. And then through the prophecies, and though there are many prophecies about this great one coming, the Messiah, which means chosen one, the anointed one, maybe the clearest is found in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, which reads, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Okay, 700 years before Jesus comes. You've got to wonder, who is this person talking about? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then he also testifies to the resurrection. Just as the Psalms say, You will not abandon my soul to death, or let your Holy One see corruption. That's Psalm 16. So the whole entire Old Testament is presenting this unified plan that God would deliver in his chosen one. That is Jesus Christ. This Jesus is the Messiah. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That sinners have a way out, though they have all, we all have sinned against God, earning for ourselves just condemnation. But in the midst of that, so as we all are headed headlong into hell, condemnation, we see God in his grace coming down to rescue and drawing some out, all those who would repent and believe, no matter their class, No matter their ethnicity, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how sinful you are, salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the message Paul was entrusted with, and then he goes around preaching this message. So in chapter 18, he visits Corinth. Later on, he writes a letter to the Corinthian church. And this is what he says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing except Christ crucified. That is a message that he heralds, that the faithful witness testifies to. And it's so important, this message here, that the demon-possessed slave girl, go ahead and turn to chapter 16, verse 17. I'll go ahead and read verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul or she followed us. That's Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, crying out. These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
Interesting there. The demons know what saves. It's this message of salvation. And this message of salvation, if you believe it, there's reason to rejoice, right? So, so the Philippian jailer, they, Paul eventually, he's locked up in jail. Um, stuff happens, miracles happen, earthquakes happen. The jailer freaks out and he eventually is led to believe the gospel. Look at verse 31 of chapter 16. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all who were in his house. And then look at 34. Then he brought them into his house. This is the jailer. He brings them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had actually believed in God. So he preaches the gospel and from the word. That is faithful witnessing. It's no wonder that a commentator noted And I think if we all were reading this passage and spending our time doing our devotions in it, which I hope you all are, you would be able to agree with this author. He says, through these chapters, Luke seems to be drawing readers' attention to the attitude to the scriptures, adopted by both speaker and their hearers as evidenced by the verbs he uses. So all throughout these chapters, he's drawing attention to these things. In Thessalonica, Paul reasoned, he explained, he proved, he proclaimed and persuaded. While in Berea, the Jews eagerly received the message and diligently examined the scriptures. And then likewise in Corinth, Paul is also persuading and then he is occupied with the word. There is truth in the word. The message of salvation is in the word. I wonder when you reason, so just imagine the last time that you had your evangelistic conversation with your friends. And maybe you were asked uh, some sort of question that sort of got you puzzled. What were you reasoning from? Were you reasoning from the scriptures? Even if you didn't necessarily have an answer to what that person said, were you holding out to them a scriptural, a biblical example or the biblical truth about salvation? That's found in Jesus Christ. What do you reason with? You know, in my evangelism, there's times when when someone will ask me a question. That is an an important question, but maybe that the scriptures don't really speak to. Like maybe a personal question. They say, you know, why do things happen to me in this particular way? You know, I have to say, you know what? I just, I can't answer that question at this time. I'm going to go back and look and see how scripture applies to this. But this is what is most important that you understand and realize. Here, this is who Jesus is. And in doing that, you then reveal what you think your power is in conversion or in sharing the gospel. You show what is what you rely on, really. Is it your own strength? Is it your own ability to reason? But here Paul shows us that his authority, his confidence really is in the gospel. If you're looking to know more about uh, how God presents a unified plan to save people, save sinners in Jesus Christ, a fantastic book is called God's Big Picture. It's probably only about 100 pages, and it speaks about how all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected Messiah, the Savior. That's God's Big Picture. You can go ahead and buy it. It's a pretty relatively cheap book. Um, And if you want to, maybe I or Danny, we've been reading it together, uh, maybe we can lend it to you. An important thing to note before we move on from this one, a faithful witness witnesses to the gospel. Part of witnessing to the gospel is requiring a call to repent and believe or calling people to actually turn from their sin. So you all might have feared at some point in time calling someone to turn from their sin because it really means that we tell them that they're sinners, right? That's the implication. If we say you need to turn from your sin, But you don't need to fear doing this. I mean, when was the last time you actually met someone who believed they were not sinful? And you can just simply ask some questions, right? Like, when was the last time you lied? And they'll be able to tell you. When's the last time you've stolen something? They'll be able to tell you. When's the last time you lusted in your heart? Chances are they're going to be able to tell you if they know their hearts at all. So telling someone that they're sinful really just uh, involves revealing to them something that they already know and so that's a good and loving thing to do and if you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to be a believer 
it's a good thing to embrace the fact that you are sinful because Jesus Christ came to save sinners, right? He came to save the sick, not the healthy, the unrighteous, not those who feel like they are righteous. So embrace that, the fact that we are sinful. So you don't, you, you don't hide your shame, but you embrace it and then you run to the cross with it as Jesus embraces all those who repent and believe. So then the question is, have you repented and believed? If not, do not let this day go by where you don't turn from your sin and believe. It's what God desires of you. Jesus saves those who repent and believe. If you want to talk more about this gospel, I'd be happy to meet up with you. Um, so afterwards, find me. I'll get your telephone number. You can get mine. We can meet up afterwards and discuss more about this gospel of Jesus Christ. Characteristic number three. A faithful witness is aware of his surroundings. Now this is presented here in Acts chapter 17. Eventually they go to Athens. So here, Athens, right? This is the home of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, and Paul. He's no, he's no uh, lightweight either. He was trained in Tarsus, also trained in Jerusalem. And so you would imagine that you're having these two great worldviews collide. And you would figure that they would be battling over philosophies and whatnot. But no, you see him just witnessing to the word. But he witnesses in such a way where he is aware of his surroundings. So when he talks, talks to Jews who know the Old Testament, he sort of can reason from one starting point. How all the Old Testament presents Jesus as the Savior. But when he's reasoning to non-Christians, so pagans, polytheistic people, he starts from a different position, even though it's biblical. Still biblical, but starting from a different position. And we know this too, okay? So if we witness, let's say, to our Hindu friends, I hope you have Hindu friends, um, we can't simply say, or if we simply say, you know, Jesus Christ is the God-man who came to die on the, on the cross for your sins. You know what their reaction is going to be? They say, oh, well, great, fantastic. We'll take Jesus and we'll add him to the shelf of gods that we believe in. And in many ways, it's sort of like covering your bases. You see how really that's kind of confusing to the Hindu? Actually, if we just simply stop there. But when we start clarifying and saying something like, God is the only God. Oh, well, it's really different then in terms of his polytheistic background. But yet it's still biblical. And Paul does this very same thing, actually. Uh, go ahead and look at verse 17. Or actually 16. We'll set the setting. Now, while Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to get there, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's walking through and he sees that these people are religious and there's, there's altars for every single god out there. And even to one that is an unknown God. So they themselves are like covering their bases. So let's build an altar and just slap unknown God, you know, just in case he's going to get us or whatever. And look at what Paul does in 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, famous place where he's in front of this council. And he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. So he knows that they're ignorant, really, because they're sort of grasping after everything. And he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So, okay, what is he going to proclaim? He's really clear. Look at 24. The God, so the God that has an article, a singular article, there is only one. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. And then he just, he just goes on. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made, not these other gods. This is one that you don't know about. This one God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then he, he goes on and says in, in 31, that he, that is God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that is the God-man Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's a different starting point there, right? He has to clarify the fact that God 
is the God who is creator and sustainer of all things from which he has made everyone. So here he's aware of who he's speaking to, right? So he's speaking to uh, monotheistic Jews. He's also speaking to polytheistic pagans. He doesn't take anything for granted and he starts with God. This is very much the culture that we live in today. A postmodern culture where we ought not to assume anything. So if I mention something about God, I mean, that person might think that, you know, God is in everything. Pantheism or panentheism, uh, that we are all part of God. We, we need to be clarifying who this God is according to the scriptures. Paul here is aware of who he's talking to. I wonder, do you all know who you speak to? In, in what ways do you try and relate to the people that you are speaking to? And find out more about who they are. Develop an awareness about who they are. Um, the other day I was talking with uh, Oscar. Oscar's in the back. Oscar, can you raise your hand? Hi, Oscar. Um, he was telling me that he was studying near where he lives, which is near USC. And uh, he was at Starbucks. And this guy sits down and says, hey, can I borrow your phone? And eventually the conversation leads to Oscar in his wisdom, God-given wisdom, sort of leads the conversation. And eventually starts talking to him about things like... You know that everybody dies. And, you know, you figure that the guy would be taken aback a little bit. But Oscar was saying that he wasn't really. He's like, yeah, everybody dies. I know that. And then he starts talking about, well, do you know where you're going to go after you die? And then eventually after questions. So he's gaining, gaining information about this person, right? That what their worldview, what they think. And then eventually he finds out that this man doesn't. Uh, he thinks he is a good man. He thinks he's going to go to heaven. And then Oscar helps him realize that, wow, you know, actually you are a sinful person. He agrees and then he eventually passes him a tract and gives him a portion of the Bible, the Gospel of John. Right. Becoming aware of who you're talking to just requires us to be asking some questions about what they actually think about who reigns and who rules and what, how they view themselves. And when you have that information, you then can be addressing these issues uh, with skill from the word of God. So let me encourage you to seek to develop an awareness about, about the people that you speak to and evangelize. It just requires asking a few different types of questions about who they are, what they believe, who is Jesus, things like that. Characteristic number four. A faithful witness is jealous for God's glory. A faithful witness is jealous for God's glory. This brings us back to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. I love this, this verse. I have this verse by the Spirit's power really stuck out to me. And I was deeply convicted. It says there, now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. You get the idea that Paul, so he's persecuted, right? He goes to Thessalonica. He basically takes off. He goes to Berea. Um, and and he, the, this mob basically follows him down, Greece basically. And then eventually he's sent to Athens and it says that he's waiting for his partners, right? Saul, uh, Silas, and Timothy. It's like he's looking back and he's waiting for them. But look what it says there. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It's like he's waiting for his friends, but yet at the same time, in the context that he is, his soul, his heart can't help but be moved. By the idolatry that's going on there. It doesn't say that he was driven because he wanted to reach the intellectuals of the city. You know, some people think it's cool. Like their evangelistic plan, they're going to lay it out there. It, it says, oh, we're going to reach the, the intellectuals of the city. And that's the mission. That's what drives our mission in the city. Other people might say, man, we want to reach thousands of people for Christ. And we want to see 100 people converted. Now, neither of those things are bad in and of themselves. But you just don't see Paul doing that here. It doesn't say that he's even driven by the desire to plant 20 churches in the next 20 years. A desire that I certainly have. What launches Paul into ministry? It's godly jealousy. His spirit is provoked. His emotions, it's like his emotions are being drawn out. And it's really hard to, to, to uh, translate this word provoked here. But what we do know is that it says that this word provoked is used for God as he looks upon idolatry. 
So Paul here, he's thinking about idolatry in the same way as God thinks about idolatry. And God, we know, is zealous for his own glory. So Paul here is zealous for God's glory as well, because he knows that God's glory is sort of being stolen, being given to other things, all these other so-called gods that they themselves have have built up here. He is zealous for God. And he's happy to go ahead and say in 2 Corinthians 11, he says he yearns for these Corinthians with divine jealousy. He says, I betrothed you all as believers, new believers to God. And I want you to worship him. So he's doing the same thing here. You know, know, we all are called to fulfill the great commission. Preaching the gospel. Evangelism. But I confess godly jealousy doesn't move my heart as much as it ought. Godly jealousy doesn't move my heart as much as it ought. You know, we as a church have been have been reading through when God is when people are big and God is small. So it's a book that deals with the fear of man um, and shows what happens when we fear man. And then it holds out a bigger fear of God as the answer to our fear of man. You know, I confess that that sometimes I get defensive. I get provoked inside and eternal internally because I want to protect my name. So we get defensive, right? When we all get defensive, to some degree, what we are doing is pro- uh, protecting our names, right? Don't, you don't believe that about me. Make sure you don't. I need to tell you, you are wrong about me. I know myself. Whether that person might be falsely accusing us or even rightly accusing us. Don't you dare believe that about me, even if it is true. So it's like we rise to protect our name and our honor and our glory. The question we got to ask ourselves if you're a believer is why are we so jealous for our own glory and so slow to be provoked for God's? Why is it that we find ourselves more passionate, right? Drawn out. Passionate about maintaining our public opinion of ourselves rather than maintaining the glory of god in the world you guys know what it's like for people to spread rumors about you whether they be false or rumors are always false you know what it's like for people to find out the real truth about yourself when was the last time your emotions were were drawn out because people weren't giving god his glory you know sadly sometimes when i drive up hacienda boulevard i see the buddhist temple over there And Buddhists teach that basically you save yourself. Righteousness is within yourself. And sometimes I just think, man, that's a beautiful structure. Drive by and don't give any thought about what they're actually teaching against God. And so as I was meditating on this sermon and as I was convicted by this verse, Paul being provoked because of the idolatry in the city. And that moves him to evangelize. I said, oh my goodness, I confess my sin. I say every time I drive up that street and I pass that building, I pray that God would help me pray that his glory would be made known to them. The truth of the gospel would be made known to them. So let me encourage you, if you find yourself identifying with me here, not being easily provoked for God's glory, make that your prayer as well. Look for opportunities where you can be praying that the Lord would draw your heart out for his glory so that we would see things the way he sees them. That would be amazing and so encouraging. That's characteristic number five. A faithful witness is jealous for God's glory. Or sorry, that's number four. Number five, a faithful witness is not surprised at suffering. A faithful witness is not surprised at suffering. Um, Now, as he goes through these cities, there's a lot of perception. So a lot of people do embrace Jesus Christ. Um, we got a synagogue ruler embracing Christ. We got a, a, a businesswoman embracing Christ. We got a demon possessed girl. We assume embracing Christ. We got a Philippian jailer embracing Christ. Awesome things are happening, but there's also a lot of rejection. There's also a lot of rejection. So, so look at Acts sixteen. Okay, this is the slave girl, demon-possessed slave girl. Eventually, 
she the demon is cast out of her her owners get ticked off and there's persecution and and the main issue is that their hope of money gaining money was gone because there in verse 16 the spirit which foretold the future brought them much gain and luke is really clear to make us know to let us know that and then in verse 19 but when her owners saw that her hope of gain was gone they seized paul and silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. So any new religion had to be vetted through the government. And they're basically saying that this wasn't. Christianity was not. The crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore their garments off of them and they gave them orders to beat them with rods. So they're being, their backs are lacerated. Their, their skin is opening all of this for the gospel. Now, if you if you read through this section, you see regularly that there is persecution after persecution after persecution after persecution. And in that situation, money kicks off one event. Another one, jealousy. The Jews are jealous that Paul is gaining some of their followers and they're going towards them and believing in the gospel. And so what do they do? They start up a, a mob and then the mob just basically messes up everything. And this happens in Thessalonica, this happens in Berea, and then we even have opposition and reviling in uh, Corinth. You know, some say faithfulness leads to no suffering. The greater the faith, the less the suffering. This is the prosperity gospel. And, you you know, I want to name names here only when it's so important to be naming the names. Uh, But these folks would be people like Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, folks like that. This is the prosperity gospel. But I just don't see how it links to what this passage says. I mean, we just ask the question. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are they held out as a model of malnourished spirituality for us not to follow? For us to say we need to have faith more than Paul and Silas and Timothy? No. They're actually models of robust spirituality. People who, as Acts 5 says, these disciples... They gladly suffer, right? They counted themselves worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus. So for Paul and Silas, after their backs were lacerated and forever marked with scars, I mean, what do we see them doing in prison? Look there in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. That's robust spirituality. You get beaten, you get bruised, you sing praises to God for suffering. That's that's amazing. And then what do they do when they go out of jail? Well, they're encouraging the brothers. They're not wallowing in self-pity, saying that they need more faith, but they're encouraging others in the faith. Now, I don't say these things just to simply target other individuals. This affects your faith. I don't want you leaving the door here and thinking, if I don't get that car or if I am suffering, I therefore don't have enough faith. And all I need to do then is just pray more and want more because you might genuinely have a heart so tuned towards God's desires and still not have the things you genuinely desire. Let's say a new house, a new car, money. And God is pleased with that. In fact, this is what Jesus promised in John fifteen nineteen. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. A servant is not greater than his master. In other words, if Jesus suffered and we are so much less than Jesus, then surely we too will be persecuted. He goes on, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You know, the very crux of Christianity is all about unjust suffering while obeying the commands of God. That's the crux of Christianity. Crux is cross. Jesus is our example of unjust suffering. And so when we face suffering, we can, with Jesus, rejoice. That's characteristic number five. This is characteristic number six and the last one. Paul is discouraged. You know, we know what discouragement is like. Sometimes when we suffer, Paul does the same thing. You know what keeps him going? It's not the fact that everything relies on him. 
that he's the one who is required to have slick sales presentations. But it's the faithfulness of God. Look in Acts 18. So he's discouraged. Keep in mind, Acts 18, verse 9. This is what he says. So it seems like they're about to leave. But look what God says. He says, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. So those are imperatives. Don't be afraid. Continue to speak. And don't be silent. So the, the, the question is, well, why? Because I'm just getting beat up. He says, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. Amazing, isn't it? What's to give Paul this confidence to go on witnessing, to evangelizing? What's the fact that God will continue being who he is? Characteristic number six, the faithful witness leaves the results to God. The faithful witness leaves the results to God. It is instructive to look at Lydia, chapter 16, verse 14. I mean, who converts here? It's not Paul. One who heard us was the woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now get this, the Lord, it doesn't say Paul opened, it doesn't say she opened. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. That's instructive for us. The faithful witness leaves the results ultimately to God. And we saw this earlier in the book of Acts, but it's similar here, right? I mean, who's the one who, who saved Paul? Well, it's God. Who is Paul? The demon-possessed woman said that she, they are God's servants. Who is it that called Paul towards Macedonia and prevented him from going throughout, throughout other portions of Turkey? It's God. Whose word is Paul ministering from? It is God's word. And what act is Paul witnessing to? Well, it's God's work of salvation through himself. Through his son, Jesus Christ. And who opens the heart of sinners to believe the gospel? It is God. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. And do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. This is the charge that Paul is to embrace and continue. Because God is going to save. This is God's servant preaching God's word about God's gospel in order that God would build his church. As Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So if you want to be a faithful witness, what you need are not slick sales presentations, manipulation. What you need is a firm belief in who God is and what God has promised. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that you are the one in control. Because surely if we know, if we were the ones in control, we would get nothing done. We can't even control our lives. We can barely organize our day planners and our calendars. But Lord, we thank you that from eternity past into eternity future, Lord, you know everything that will go on as you bring everything and move everything towards the grand climax of Jesus Christ receiving the praise and honor and glory that is due his name. Lord, for us as your witnesses, we pray, that, Lord, that you would give us boldness and courage to carry out the great commission to spread your gospel, your truth around this area to our family, our friends, to Hacienda Heights and beyond. We pray, Lord, that First Baptist Church would always be a church uh, that is grounded and that is trusting in the word. In your name we pray. Amen.